Revelation 21, verses 9 to 27, the new Jerusalem. So we're just going to jump in and read the whole chapter. We covered verses 1 to 8 last week, but it gives us a context. So here we go. I'll pray first. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the glorious hope of this beautiful city that is being prepared, or will be prepared, for us, your children, and you will dwell among us. And we just thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 9 Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sidonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, 
the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, let's start at verse 10, Revelation 21 verse 10. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, won't that be a sight to behold? In a little bit, we're going to see just how big this thing is. It's going to be something beyond comprehension. It's going to be really, really bright and shiny with all these beautiful different colors we'll get into later. And it's going to be coming like into the atmosphere of the earth from heaven. So, yeah, I can't wait to see it. But in verse 10, it says, in the spirit. And that literally is in the power of the spirit. So John is being carried away in the power of the spirit to this great and high mountain, and he sees this. He has a bird's eye view of the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And in verse 11, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, these stones, these most precious stones, they didn't have definitive names for each of the different types of stone. but most scholars believe that jasper is the diamond, and it kind of makes sense. It's the only one that's as clear as crystal. Verse 12. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And there's three in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three in the west. And names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, this is interesting. I just want to point this out. I've done it before. Again, the Bible explains itself, if you know what I mean. The Bible interprets itself. And there are some people, preterists, kingdom now, or dominionist, who teach that God has rejected all Israelites as a people and as a nation, because they rejected Jesus. They say all the covenants that God made with Israel were abrogated, that means cancelled or broken, and taken away because they rejected the Messiah, Jesus. And now the promises apply to the church, and therefore they say that Israel has no future. So I would ask a person who believes that, if God has permanently rejected his own chosen and covenant people Israel, then why are the names on the eternal city of the New Jerusalem on the gates? Again, if God has rejected Israel, then why are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel written on the twelve gates of the New Jerusalem? So, you know, it's obvious that God has not done away with Israel. He's going to keep his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God. Once he says something, he never goes back on his word. And that's why we can be sure about our salvation as well. But unfortunately, this teaching is sweeping through the church today. So just be aware of it. It's also called replacement theology. Okay, So when you hear that, you know what it's talking about. It's wrong. All right, verse 14. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So we just talked about having the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates. Now we have the names of the apostles on the foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's going to be like 12 foundation stones. It must be pretty massive. As we'll get to that in a minute. Each with the name of one of the 12 apostles. And this shows us that the city is going to contain both the believing Israelites, their names are on the gate, and also those who came to faith or belief in Jesus Christ as Saviour after his death and resurrection, 
as represented by the church. And something to note about the foundations. Remember what it says in Corinthians, that no other foundation can be laid than the one that is already laid? Their foundation is Jesus Christ. All right? And a quote from David Guzik, If it isn't built on the foundation of the apostles, it isn't the right place for God's people. The new Jerusalem and the church are founded upon the apostles, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And that's from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. In verse 14, it says, of the Lamb. So why does it refer to Jesus as the Lamb here? Well, the only way to have entrance or acceptance into the city is by the blood of the Lamb, right? By his sacrifice. These are the ones who are bought by the blood of Jesus, who believe that Jesus died in their place as the Lamb of God. And that is the foundation of what we believe. So he's called the Lamb there because the Lamb, the sacrifice, is the foundation of Christianity. It's what pays the penalty for our sins and makes the way clear for us to be back in the presence of God. Now verse 16, The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Now, depending on who you read, it's about 1,300 miles or 1,500 miles in each dimension. (laughs) Just try and get your head around that. 1,500 miles is about 2,400 kilometers. So just try and imagine that. 2,400 kilometers wide, 2,400 kilometers long and 2,400 kilometers high. Now, this could be a cube, like a square cube, or it could be a square pyramid. We just don't know, because both those shapes would fit those dimensions. But either way, it's massive, all right? So 2,400 kilometers, if we use Australia, I've got that on the screen there, that orange square would be the size of the city. So just try and imagine a city which takes up at least two-thirds of the land area of Australia. It's going to be massive. And no wonder the builder and maker of this city must be God because it's beyond human means to build a city this big and also, you know, airlift it down from heaven to to earth. (laughs) And verse 17, Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. So, how thick is 144 cubits? Well, it's about 70 meters thick. Okay, So, the length of an Olympic swimming pool, plus 20 meters. And you'll have the width of this wall. In verse 18, the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So, the way I see it, the way I understand it, is that the city was made of gold, which was so pure that it's translucent, so you can see through it like glass. So I believe it's still going to have the color of gold, otherwise it wouldn't be called gold, most likely. So basically the entire construction of the city, apart from the walls and foundations, which would be diamond and gems, will be of gold, which is so pure that it's clear like transparent glass. So you start to get a picture of what it's going to be like in this city. And it says in verse 18, the construction of its wall was jasper. And jasper, you know, diamond is completely transparent. And we also know, so just try and picture this in your head, right? The glory of God will fill the city because God himself will dwell in the city and his glory will illuminate the city. And we'll read that, get to that in verses 22 and 23. So with the city made of transparent gold and the walls of the city made of diamond and the foundation made of all these precious gems, which you're going to get into soon, it's just going to be radiating this 
beautiful, beautiful light. Gold and all these other colors from all these different gems. And diamonds scatter light. So it's just going to be something that's going to be almost unimaginable, unimaginably beautiful. So, verse 19 and 20, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And it goes through the stones there. So I'm just going to go through what we know. So jasper is a diamond that's clear. The sapphire is blue. The chalcedony, it could be the onyx. The emerald is green. The sardonyx, we're not sure. The sardius is most likely a deep red or pink diamond. The chrysolite, we're not sure. The beryl, we're not sure. The topaz is a goldish yellow color. The chrysophras is an apple green colored diamond. And the jacinth is a very deep blue diamond. And the amethyst is purple. So you've got blue, dark red and pink, goldish yellow, apple green, deep blue and purple. So all those beautiful colors and the light streaming through them and amazing refractions and reflections. It would be awesome. Now verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was like pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, someone did an estimation of how many people have lived on the earth. If 20% of the people were Christians, it'd be about, you know, an estimate of, say, 2 billion Christians in this city, which is why it needs to be so big. <laughs> But even with all those people, there's still lots and lots of room, okay? Because it's not just wide and long, but it's also very high. Now, try putting these 12 pearls on a necklace. And Marissa would like to have a pearl necklace for our wedding anniversary, 20 years. But I think these would be a little heavy. This city is, as I said, about 2,400 kilometers in each direction, and there's three gates on each of the four walls. But they've got to be big gates. So imagine how big these pearls are. It's huge. And verse 21, And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And this is talking about the main street. Now, Something to notice here, if everything is transparent, will you have privacy? You'll be able to see everything. So I don't think we'll need to go to the toilet. I don't think we'll need to get changed. But because we are perfect, because by that time we are going to be made perfect in body, soul, and spirit. There'll be nothing to hide. Again, we talked about this before. There'll be perfect community. It'll be a holy city. We won't mind being around people because we won't have a sin nature anymore. And verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So this reminds us of verse 3 which we talked about last week, where John says that, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So again, when it says that God will tabernacle with men, it means that he will dwell with us. To tabernacle as a verb, as a doing word, it means to dwell in or with. So the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a representation of God dwelling or tabernacling among his people. In the new heavens and earth, no representation or type or picture is necessary. We will experience the real thing, the direct presence of God tabernacling or dwelling with us. And that's the Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 
So here we are given the light source. So who is the person of the Godhead which is illuminating this city? It's the Lamb, it's Jesus, it's God the Son. Remember in the Old Testament we had the Shekinah glory as God's tangible presence among his people? But no one except the high priest and only him once a year could come into this presence of God. But when we get to be with Jesus, we will see him in all his glory. So glorious and bright that he will illuminate the entire city. And I was just thinking now, no wonder John fell down as dead when he turned around and saw who was talking to him in chapter 1. If Jesus is so bright, he's going to illuminate the whole city. You'd probably be fearful as well. And David Guzik gives three applications for the Lamb is its light. So light speaks of joy, for in the scriptures light and joy go together. Light speaks of beauty, because without light there is no beauty. Light speaks of knowledge, and in heaven we will all know him as he knows us. So that's David Guzik's explanation of what it means for the Lamb is its light. It's not just the physical light, but it's also the light of the knowledge of him as well, and other things. So verses 24 to 26, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. Now this is interesting. Because it just tells us this, but it doesn't say who these nations are. And who these people are, who are going to be coming into this city. So, we'll have to wait until we get there to find out. That's the long and short of it. But this is consistent with Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, where it says, And they shall reign forever and ever. So for us to reign, there must be someone for us to reign over. So who these people are living on the earth and not in the city, I do not know. But we will find out then. God has not revealed everything to us. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Right, verse 27. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, verse 27. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If you believed in Jesus and you said, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to accept, but right now I receive the gift of pardon that you died in my place to pay for, then you are in his book. So remember the two books. There's a book of life and the Lamb's book of life. So one is called the book of life, one is called the Lamb's book of life. So with the book of life, we all start with our names written in it, every single person, written in it before the foundation of the world. Every person had their name written in the book of life. But if you die without accepting Jesus' payment for your sin on your behalf, then your name is blotted out of the book of life. And that's why when we go to the Great White Throne Judgment, it says, if the person's name was not found written in the book of life, then they would be sent to the lake of fire, which is the second death. But the Lamb's book of life is different. The Lamb's book of life is when your name is written in, as opposed to being blotted out. So with the Lamb's book of life, your name is written in. The moment you believe, the moment you Receive the free gift of pardon, the payment for your sins. So what John is saying here is that only the righteous will enter and be allowed to live in the new Jerusalem. 
And righteous means perfect, having God's righteousness. So let's consider what it means to be righteous. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, which is very similar to Revelation 21, 27. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see the similarities here? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so it's just the same thing, but the bigger list, yeah, so far? Verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So just putting a couple of phrases from verses 9 and 11 together, it says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. I know myself. I've lied. I've stolen. I've lusted. I fit many of those categories. We were all disqualified from being a part of this glorious future, of being a part of God's family and his kingdom. But this is past tense, and such were some of you. And why? Well, the verse goes on to tell us. and This is so encouraging. But you were washed. What does that mean? Well, we were washed by the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice, his death on the cross, was a payment for my sins and the sins of the whole world. Isaiah 1.18 Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then it goes on in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. But you were sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, simply put, it means you are made holy. Okay. A definition I read, it says this. It means to be sanctified means to be or become as dedicated to God, either in distinction, in devotion, or in moral purity. So I'll read that again. It means to be or become as dedicated to God, either in distinction, in devotion, or in moral purity. In other words, we are set apart for God's use. Another passage in Corinthians talks about this. We are set apart for God's use to be vessels of honor, not dishonor, who will bring glory to God instead of ourselves and Satan. And what it means is that one day I will be completely righteous in thought, word, and deed. Now, consider Hebrews 10.14. It says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, notice the two verbs there. One is in the past tense, perfected forever, and one is in the present tense. It says, who are being sanctified. Now, I want to focus on the sanctified bit there, the being sanctified. So what is it? In 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says that we were sanctified or made holy. That's a past tense. But in Hebrews 10.14, it says that we are being sanctified. Is that a contradiction? Well, they're both true. Why? Let me explain. From God's point of view, who sees the end from the beginning, who prophetically speaks things before they happen, and because he is the one who causes things to happen and the one who controls everything and the one who knows everything, from his perspective, I am already sanctified. He can already see me in the new Jerusalem with him. So from God's perspective, I'm already sanctified. It's a done deal. He said it's going to happen. It's done. But from my perspective, I'm still being sanctified. Does that make sense? So like in the Old Testament, we read many of those prophecies where God speaks of a future event in the past tense because in his eyes, 
it's as good as done. It's a prophetic perfect, I think they call it. So, right now, I am still a work in progress. You can ask my wife <laughs> or my kids. Definitely still a work in progress. But from God's point of view, it's a done deal. It's as good as done. He already sees me as being finished, as being complete. So I want to read a couple of verses that talk about this transformation. Now here's one, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. It brings us back to 1 Corinthians 6.11 where it says that we were sanctified by the Spirit of our God. So, I cannot pay my own fine. I cannot justify myself. I cannot make myself innocent in God's courtroom. I cannot stand before God. I'm guilty on my own. I can never pay my fine. And most people understand that, right? But most people don't understand this. And that is, neither can we sanctify ourselves, neither can we change or transform ourselves to become like Christ. It's just as impossible. It is impossible for us to change who we are on the inside. So how are we sanctified? How does it happen? Well, it's all about Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we are born again, we are baptized into living union with the person of Jesus Christ himself. The process of sanctification means that God transforms us to become like him, into his image, the same image that God originally made Adam and Eve in. So consider Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us, Christ in me, Christ in you, is the hope of glory. Okay, The process of change that changes us from the image of Adam to the image of Christ is beyond us. It's not something we can do. It is God who changes us and he does it by living in us. He gives us a new heart, new desires, which are ultimately his desires. And you can Reference Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Christ lives in me. Now, while we are down here on earth, we can speed up the process of sanctification, this process of being made holy, of being made like Christ, by our willing submission to God's will, by willingly allowing God to transform our minds. But... <laughs> Even if we are completely rebellious children and we fight God all our days by continuing to indulge in sin and the lust of the flesh, when we finally die and our spirit and soul leave the sinful body with its sinful nature, then all that is left is our new nature. Our transformation into the image of Christ will be complete. Okay? I'll just repeat that idea. Even if I'm a rebellious child of God and I'm constantly fighting Him, rebelling against Him, doing things my way, God is still sanctifying me. He's still making me holy. And when that day comes, when my spirit and soul leave this sinful body with its sinful nature attached to it, then all that is left is my new nature and my transformation into the image of Christ is complete. So it's important to understand that our sanctification is a process that begins the moment we are saved and will not finish until we go to be with the Lord when we are finally free from these sin-cursed bodies. And you can reference Romans 8, 18-25. It's very explicit in its content of really wanting to be free from this body of sin and death. 
Now, I'm going to go to this application, how God changes us from being a degenerate, wretched sinner to being completely transformed into the image of God. And can a true believer jeopardize their salvation by falling into sin? Because some people read the verses in Revelation and they say, hmm, no lies in heaven. Well, I still lie. Does that disqualify me? If I do some really bad stuff, is that going to disqualify me from heaven? Am I not going to be good enough? Okay, so I'm going to take the time to go through this because there seems to be a lot of confusion among Christians concerning losing their salvation and what effect does falling into habitual sin have on their relationship with God. And my goal here is to show that once a person is truly saved, the process of change that makes a person completely righteous before God is inevitable, unstoppable, and irreversible. As we have just read, it is God who is responsible for changing us. So where does our backsliding fit into the scheme of things? So to understand that, we're going to first look at the process of salvation. And you might not realize this, but the process of salvation is in three stages. The first stage is our justification. So at the moment a person is saved or forgiven, they are justified. And justification solves the problem of man's guilt before a righteous judge. That was David Guzik. My sin debt is cleared because Jesus paid it in full. And justification literally means just if I'd never sinned. In God's sight, I am declared innocent, free from the guilt or penalty of all wrongdoing or sin. But you know what? God goes even further than simply removing our sin. He also gives us Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is one of my favorite verses. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, did you see what's happening here? God took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That we might what? Become the righteousness of God in him. Now what we just read before, Colossians 1.27, the mystery, the hope of glory is Christ in you, Christ in us, okay, the believer. So really it's not just just if I'd never sinned, but rather just as if I'd done everything right. It's amazing. Christ took my sinful life upon himself and at the same time credited me with his perfect life. He gave me his righteousness. And it all comes back to Colossians 1.27, this wonderful verse. I am in Christ. I am declared to be as righteous as Jesus. And that's the true meaning, the full meaning of justification. Now, how does the Bible say that this being justified or declared righteous comes about? Well, we can go to Romans chapter 3. Let's read verses 24 and 25 from the New King James and the New Living Translation. So New King James verse, it says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, not through works, but through faith, through simple belief. And that becomes very clear in the New Living Translation. It says, Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So justification is only received by faith, by simple repentance and belief in the gospel. It can't be earned or worked for, only received because it is freely given. That means without cost. Also notice about justification, it's a once-off event that happens the moment a person is born again. It's a one-off event and it's done. It's a done deal when you're born again, it's finished. So, coming back to our question, how does my falling into sin as a believer affect my justification, my being justified, my legal standing of being not guilty in God's courtroom as being as 
righteous as Christ? Well, simple answer is it doesn't. My falling to sin does not affect my legal standing before God. It does not affect my justification. Once I receive the standing before God, my right standing before God, it is irreversible. God's promise is unconditional. Okay? Unconditional. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was more than enough to cover all my sins, past, present, and future. No matter what I do, once I am saved, I will always be considered innocent or not guilty in God's sight, and I will be considered as having lived a perfect life. Why? Colossians 1.27, because I am in Christ. I can never lose my salvation. I'll never become unjustified or lose my right standing with God through falling into sin. And that's what it means in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, when it says we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. It's not by maintaining a certain level of goodness. It's grace. It's a gift. It's freely given. So, conclusion there. If you sin, if you fall into habitual sin, it's not going to make you unjustified. That is an unconditional promise. You will remain innocent in God's eyes. Now we come to sanctification. Sanctification is, we are made holy, we are changed into the image of Christ. A good quote from Hal Lindsey, he said, The Christian life is seeking to become what we already are. The Christian life is seeking to become what we already are. And he goes on to say, We are supposed to have victory over sin and become, over time, more and more like what God has already declared us to be. And a verse that came to mind was Romans 8.29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that Jesus might be the firstborn, or the prominent one, among many brethren. So, foreknew. God knows in advance who's going to choose him and who's going to reject him. But for those who choose him, he predestined. Okay? He decided beforehand. And we know from prophecy, when God decides beforehand to do something, it's as good as done. It's a guaranteed, foregone conclusion. So listen to what Romans 8.29 is telling us. Those people that God knew would choose him, those he foreknew, were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is God. Sanctified, made holy. It's inevitable, unstoppable, irreversible. So how can God be so sure about my sanctification by being made holy like Jesus? Well, because as we read earlier, God takes responsibility for it. It is not something that I do but rather a work that God does in me. It's by His Spirit. It's Christ in me. Before I was even born, God had decided that I would be sanctified. He knew that by my free will I would accept Him. And then He made the decision, Dave's going to be sanctified. He's going to be made holy or transformed into His image. And when God says that something will happen, it always happens. So predestined to be sanctified, changed. So, as a true believer, how does my falling into sin affect my being sanctified, my being transformed into the image of God? Simply put, it doesn't. God, as our Heavenly Father, will always have His way. I'm going to use a natural example to help illustrate this. A naughty and rebellious child still grows up but along the way, they get a lot more spankings and they suffer a lot more parental discipline and unnecessary hardship along the way. Their relationship with their parents also suffers and is strained as they are not submissive or obedient to their parents. Make sense? Okay. Every child is going to grow up, but they can have an easy life or a difficult life. And the same is true for our relationship with God. Our sin grieves God and forces him to discipline us. And remember that no parent enjoys having to discipline their child. 
But He never stops loving us and He never gives up on us. So to put it even more simply, here's a quote for you. Regarding our sanctification, our change to be made holy, we can do things the easy way or the hard way, but God, as our Heavenly Father, will always have His way. <laughs> okay, I'll read that again. Regarding our sanctification, we can do things the easy way or the hard way, but God, as our Heavenly Father, will always have His way. Now we come to the last stage of our salvation, which is glorification. It's when we receive our new, perfect, sinless, immortal, glorified, resurrection body. And the promise is given in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So we're talking about the resurrection here into a new physical body. Verse 21, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life or resurrected. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So, is that a conditional promise or unconditional promise? Unconditional promise, yep. Okay. And it's all based on the fact that Christ rose already from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Okay. Everyone, in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life, a new resurrection body. So again, as a true believer, how does my falling into sin affect my being glorified? It doesn't. The promise of the believer receiving his resurrection body is unconditional. Again, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Because Christ rose from the dead, then so will I. Why? Colossians 1.27 Because I am in Christ. So, conclusion. Falling into sin as a genuine born-again Christian will not affect my justification, sanctification, or glorification. They are all unconditional promises given to the believer, the one who chooses to receive them by faith. So in saying that, the question now becomes, so how does falling into sin affect me? Well, I just want to say there's more than one way to rebel against God. Rebellion against God can take two forms. Firstly, there are sins of omission. The things that we know we should do, but don't do. So examples of sins of omission include neglect of God's word, prayerlessness, failure to share the gospel or refusing to be an ambassador of Christ, that's 2 Corinthians 5.20. Failure to demonstrate love to others. Failure to help or serve or give when God calls us to. Sins of omission. When we don't do what we know we should do. Secondly, there are sins of commission. The things that we know we shouldn't do but do anyway. Like, Pornography, living with a person in a relationship. Drugs, alcohol, compulsive lying, stealing, cheating, gossiping, homosexual relationships, watching worldly movies, addicted to social media, and the list goes on. So, while living in rebellion against God does not affect my justification, sanctification, or glorification, in other words, my salvation, it does affect me as a believer in two very important ways. So, firstly, the first way my sin affects me is it affects my capacity to enjoy my love relationship with God in the here and now while I'm living in this body on this earth. So remember that it's only as I choose to know, love, obey and abide that the Spirit can work through me. 
that God's love fills me, that I display and experience the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22-23. But I just want to read John 14, 21 to you. It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So manifest means reveal. So Jesus is saying, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. So Jesus is saying here that if I want God to reveal himself to me, if I want to experience his love in my heart and my life, the peace of past understanding, the joy, the love, I must first choose to draw near to him. James chapter 4 verse 8. So what this means is that at any given moment, I am as close to God as I choose to be. No more and no less. I choose to love the world and its passing pleasures more than I love God, or I choose to love God more than I love the passing pleasures of this world. Now, another way my falling into sin affects me is it affects my eternal reward that I receive at the beam of seat judgment. And this has eternal ramifications, eternal consequences, as it will determine my role not only in Jesus' earthly millennial reign for that thousand years, which is important enough, but also for eternity, when we inhabit the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And just one verse to highlight this, Daniel 12.3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars, for how long? Forever and ever. Okay? So this reward is not just a temporary thing which you get to enjoy for a bit, a short amount of time, or a thousand years, whatever. It's forever and ever. So, to sum everything up today, our salvation is in three stages. So, justification is the salvation, you could say, of our spirit. We are fully justified when we are born again. Our spirit becomes one with God's spirit. You can see Romans 8, 9-16 and 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Our soul, the process of transforming us into the image of Jesus, sanctification, starts when we are born again and finishes when we leave our sinful nature and body behind when we die. And you can see Romans 8, 18-25 describes that very well. And the third stage in our salvation is our body is saved. It's actually replaced because our old body is corrupt, is too corrupt. It's completely corrupted. We have a sin nature. And when we leave our body, we also leave our sin nature behind. And when we get a new body, it's awesome. So, salvation, three stages. Our spirit is justified, our soul is sanctified, and our body is glorified. Just think of it that way. And a good verse to sum up the certainty or unconditional nature of all three stages of our salvation is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to read this in two versions as well. It says in the New King James, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Philippians 1, 6 in New Living says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So, God began the good work and will continue whose work? His work until it is finally finished, yeah? So, God began the work and he will complete it. So, therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, take comfort because no matter how badly a true believer falls, he can be confident that God will complete the work that he started. Now, if you're not saved, go back to last week's sermon, and we talked about that last week. How do you know if you pass the test? How do you know if Colossians 1.27 is true for you? You have Christ living in you. Because if you don't, you are not saved. It's 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves. Examine yourself to see if Christ is in you. Now, concluding application. 
the right reason to remain pure and seek first the kingdom of God. What is a motivation for being pure? Okay. Why should I avoid sin? Is it because I'm scared I might lose my salvation? No. God's not holding like an axe over our head and saying, <laughs> if you do that, I'm going to chop you out of my family. No. I'm going to use 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20 as an example of this. And the example that Paul uses in this scripture is sexual immorality, but we can apply this to any sin. It just happened to be the, the particular sin they were committing at that time in that church. But we can apply it to any sin. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, and then finish with a quick quote. So you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. And you can put sin there as well, right? Our eyes were not made for looking at bad movies or pornography and things like that. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. That's a resurrection. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person and this is very similar to Colossians 1.27, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. One spirit with him. Verse 18, Paul continues, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You see how Paul's trying to motivate these people to follow God's commands? It's not, you better obey, you're going to lose your salvation. No. He's not saying, if you don't obey, you're going to lose your salvation, you're going to go to hell. No. If you're a Christian, there's a different motivation for obeying God. And what is that? Well, I'm going to quote Hal Lindsey. He says, Paul is making an appeal to these believers to stop their wrong behavior. But look how he does it. And this is the point that I want you to never forget. He didn't come in with a battle axe and say, stop that or you are going to lose your salvation. He said, stop that because you are such a member of the body of Christ that even in that sin, you have joined Christ to this person. So he says, stop it because you're disgracing Jesus. He didn't say, stop because he, God, will cut you off. No. And the second argument he, Paul, uses is also, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So whatever you do, you drag the Holy Spirit into it. Therefore, quit. End of quote. So, we're all headed for the New Jerusalem, the city whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11.10. So, let's not get there smelling like smoke. Okay? Let's not be overcome by habitual sin and be like the person described in 1 Corinthians 3.15 where it says, if anyone's work is burned, if the result of their life is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So notice, he himself will be saved, yet he will suffer loss. His life's work will be all burned up because it wasn't done for Christ. Remember, only one life will soon be passed, only what is done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Father, Lord, we don't have to be scared that we're not going to be good enough 
to make it to heaven if we're already a Christian, if we're already saved, because you know, justification, sanctification, glorification is all an unconditional promise. And it's all because we are in Christ. Nothing can change that. It's irreversible. It's inevitable. It's unstoppable. And so we just thank you for that, Father. We thank you for your grace in allowing us to be a part of your family because we don't deserve any of these things. Lord, I pray that we would be just sitting back and humbled by all that you have done for us and to recognize that to be in the new Jerusalem is a privilege beyond comparison. You have made us righteous. And the way John says, oh, there'll be no unrighteous people in there is emphasizing the fact that only righteous people can be there and we are those righteous people. You have declared us to be righteous. Lord, help us to live like who we are. To live a life worthy of the calling that you have called us with, Lord. So we just commit ourselves to you and pray that you will fill us with your spirit and empower us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.